Welcome. You're listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Visit us on the web at vedanta.org. Om Asatoma Sadagamaya Tamasohomaham Jyotir Gamaya Mrityohormam Amritam Gamaya Avir Ahavir Maedhi Rudra Yate Dakshinam Mukaha Tenamaham Pahinityam Om, lead us from the unreal to the real. Lead us from darkness unto light. Lead us from death to immortality. And reach us through and through ourselves. And evermore protect us from ignorance by thy sweet, compassionate face. So my subject this morning is the spiritual significance of death Certainly, death is a significant subject of considerable importance for us to attend to, and it's worthy of our attention, but it's not a subject of popular discussion. I mean, life and death are like two sides of the same coin. And you'd think that just in flipping the coin back and forth, you'd kind of see one side and you'd see the other. Pretty much you would be confronted with both aspects in your course of your life. Consider each one similarly. And you'd think that, well, that you would think about death every day. And that you would factor it into your daily decision-making and that you would act accordingly. But uh, that's not so. In the Mahabharata, we're told about the five Pandava brothers were the course of a journey. They're going through a forest. They became very thirsty. And there in the distance, they stopped and they saw there a lake. And the eldest brother sent the youngest out to the lake to get some water. And uh, the youngest brother, his name was Nakul, he went down to the river, or down to the lake, and uh, there was a crane standing there by the side of the water. And the crane said, you must not drink from this lake until you can answer my questions. And the young brother just laughed, he took a drink, and uh, the crane said, I told you. And Nakul dropped dead. Second brother came down. He didn't return. Time passed, and the second brother did not return. And uh, the eldest, Yudhisthira, he sent, his, sent the second brother uh, down to the lake. The other crane says, you must not drink from this lake until you can answer my questions. And the second brother paid him no attention, drank from the lake, and f- fell dead. And the third brother, time passed, the third brother, 
Yudhis Deer is wondering, where is the water? Arjuna went down to the lake. Bhima went down to the lake. Same thing happened. And then the eldest, Yudhisthira, he went down to the lake. And there he sees the crane. And uh, he recognized that crane as the incarnation of dharma. And therefore, when the crane spoke and saying, you must not drink from this water before you answer my questions, you see, your other brothers drank without answering the questions. If you answer my questions, I can restore those brothers to life. So saying, Yudhisthira agreed to answer the questions, and therein follows in the Mahabharata a series of great philosophical questions. The first one of which is apropos to our subject this morning, because the first question that he was asked was, what is the wonder of wonders in this world? And Yudhisthira answered correctly, millions of people die every day, and yet no one themselves thinks that they will die. That was his answer. So uh, one reason that we maybe that we don't like to think of death or that we don't think of death very often, one reason is, is that, uh, well, maybe we lead relatively sheltered lives. And uh, in some ways, we're kind of like the, you remember the story of the Prince Siddhartha, who later became the enlightened Buddha, how when he was born, wise men prophesied that he would either become a great king or renounce the world and become a monk. And of course, his father, hearing this, tried to make sure that it, it was the former, not the latter. And so he arranged things so that the, the, the young prince led a sheltered life. And he grew up in a beautiful pleasure palace, surrounded on all sides by beautiful gardens. And those gardens extended beyond a deer parks so around that. And so in this way, the boy grew up. And uh, it wasn't until later on in his life, when he became a young man, that one day he just decided to go exploring. And with the help of his charioteer, Chanda, they just set off driving, and they drove through the pass and through the gardens and through the deer park and off into the nearby town of Kapilavastu. And you remember the story how for the very first time, he, uh, he saw an old man was walking along there with a cane, tottering along, stumbling, and he asked Chanda, said, what, what's wrong with this man? He said, oh, he's suffering from old age. Really? And he's felt very impacted by that um, revelation. Returned to the palace, and the next day they set off again. He was curious, came into the town, and there they saw a man who was uh, sick. He was very ill. He was being carried along to, into the hospital. What's wrong with him? Well, he's, he's suffering from a great sickness. Oh, there is such a thing as sickness. There's a revelation to him. Next day he came, there he saw another man being carried along on a, in a funeral procession. Why are all these people crying? Where are they going? Oh, this man has died. And the young prince Siddhartha is just so impacted by that revelation 
that it made a profound impression on his mind. He returned home, and therein began his great resolve to discover what is the reason for all this, this, this suffering, this sickness, this pain and death in the world. Well, like Siddhartha, similarly maybe to Siddhartha in a way, we lead sheltered lives. But unlike Siddhartha, we know full well about the existence of old age, disease, death, and suffering. But somehow, we uh, manage to uh, avoid confronting that reality. There's a famous Western psychologist. Her name was Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. She did a lot of work there talking about the psychology of death and dying. Of course, death is all about loss, about loss of life, and how do we deal, how people deal with that great loss. And as many of you know, as students of philosophy and religion, that um, she outlined those five, kind of a progression of stages of mind that we go through in any loss, whether it's small or great of uh, denial and bargaining and anger and depression, final acceptance. First stage there is what we're talking about right now, and that is that it's kind of what's called denial. Denial means is that you know full well that something is true and that you live and act as if it's not true. And that's an amazing fact. Living in denial that's our, that's our condition here in, in this world of Maya. See, once there was a man who was traveling over hill and dale, came through a forest, climbing up a hill. He looked over his shoulder, and there he saw behind him was a tiger. And the tiger was stalking him, slowly walking. The man quickened his pace. The tiger, he looked behind. tiger was still behind him. He started to run. The tiger was running in pursuit. The man was desperate. He ran up the hill. He came to the edge of the hill, the steep cliff. He looked over hundreds and hundreds of feet down, all the jagged rocks in the bottom. Tiger was almost upon him, so he just jumped over that cliff, grabbed a hold before he could fall. Just over the edge of the cliff, he grabbed hold of a, of a little branch, of a, a little bush that was growing out of the rocky side of the cliff. And there he, holding on for dear life, of that, that little branch. And as he looked up, he saw the, the tiger looking over the edge of the cliff at him. And as he looked down, he saw hundreds of feet down, those jagged rocks beneath. And then something caught his eye right there in front of his face. That uh, bush was like a wild strawberry. It was a strawberry growing right on that bush. And with his free hand, he reached over and he took that strawberry and he put it in his mouth. He's still holding on here. He put it in his mouth and he goes, ah, delicious. So that's the, that's the old Zen teaching story. That's the kind of our condition, that we're in the same condition. We're in the same predicament. Somehow we're distracted by trifling pleasures of the world. Some way we distract our minds. And we manage to live in denial. We don't want to face reality. 
So we go through these stages, denial, bargaining, anger. This is how we're dealing here with this impending loss. People don't want to face death. And on one occasion, there was a man. He was a very clever man. Well, he was uh, kind of like an amateur magician. And he, he was so clever that he had learned how to reproduce himself to perfections so that he could kind of make carbon copies of himself that you couldn't distinguish from the original. Now, it so happened that this man knew that the angel of death was looking for him. And he didn't know what to do. And he worried about it, and he thought about it. Finally, he hit upon what he thought was a good plan. And when the angel of death appeared before him, what did he see? But he saw a whole series of 10 or 12 carbon copies of this man. Reproductions. Everyone looked the same. And the angel of death stood there trying to figure out which was the real man, was baffled. And so he left. He returned to heaven, had a consultation with God, got some advice from God, and then the next day he returned. And there, sure enough, there are all the duplicates standing before him. And the angel came before us, stood there, and he said, wow, this is an amazing phenomenon. I don't know who you are, but you are, you are so clever. You're amazingly clever uh, and resourceful to have done this. I'm very impressed. But as I look, there is one flaw. There is one big fault in what you've done. And suddenly a man stepped forward and he said, what, so fault? <laughs> What, what, what fault? I, I, thought, I, think it's, I think it's all perfect reproduction. Yes, well, the angel of death, you smiled. Yes, well, you see, that's the fault, you see. So he caught the imp of the doer. So he couldn't avoid his fate. He didn't want to face reality. But somehow, in the end, he was taken by the angel of death. See, once upon a time, there was a boy who worked in a country brewery, a mountain brewery. And after he worked there for his while, he was paid his wages in the form of a keg of beer. And the boy took that keg, hoisted it up on his shoulder, and set off to find his fortune journeyed over hill and dale, he found that keg of beer was becoming heavier and heavier. He didn't want to carry it anymore. I think, I've got to find somebody that I can drink this with. Sure enough, he saw a man coming down the road, and uh, it was an old man with a long beard. He looked more closely. It was God. And he thought, uh, God, he said, no, I don't want to drink with God. He's too uh, high and mighty. Passed him by. Continued carrying his keg of beer. And it wasn't long before he, he saw another man. He was a tall, skinny man. 
had a long pointed tail running along. He thought, oh, hmm, there's the devil. He said, oh, drink with him? No, I don't want to drink with the devil. He's, he's too mean and cruel. So passed him by. Continued on. The keg was getting heavier. You see, they saw another man coming along. This man was kind of walking slowly along, wearing a long, dark, hooded cape, carrying a sickle along of his scythe. It was Mr. Death. The boy thought, hmm, Death, well, he's kind of takes everyone impartial. He's detached. Maybe he would be, yeah, I think he'd be a good man to drink with. So he offered him a drink. And Mr. Death, he was so happy to be somebody liked him, and he uh, <laughs> give him a drink. He was so uh, pleased that he offered the boy a boon. And the boon was, you know, from now on, said, however much you drain from this keg, it will continually be full, never, never run dry. Not only that, he says, if you give this beer sip of this beer to anyone that you give it to who's, who's sick, who's mortally ill, and who's about to die, they will be restored. By the way, he said, uh, wait a minute, there's one condition on that. He said, if, you're, if you do give it to someone, you should look first and see if I'm there. Because if I'm there, and if they are on their deathbed, maybe, if I'm at the foot of the deathbed, then you can give the beer, maybe they can be restored. But if I'm at the head of the bed, then that means I've already claimed them for my own. You can't give the beer. So with that, Mr. Death gave him the boon. And the boy went on his way, and it wasn't long before he was famous. In that kingdom, he'd gone around, he had saved many lives. And cured people who were ill, dying. Well, it so happened that the king of the land, he... Uh, had a daughter. And the princess, she fell ill. And she became worse and worse. The doctors came. They couldn't do anything for her. The king was desperate. He heard tell of this boy. And he had the boy brought to him, told him the princess was deathly ill. Please take a look at it. The boy goes into the room. There she is lying on the bed. And the boy immediately notices that Mr. Death is standing at the head of the bed. So he turns or he came out and he said, I'm sorry, your majesty. I've helped many other people, but I can't do anything. On this occasion, I can't help. I can't do anything. And the king pleaded and he pleaded. He said, oh, I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you half my kingdom in his reward. I'll give you a mountain of gold, and I'll give you my daughter's hand in marriage. And the boy thought, hmm, well, that sounds like a pretty good deal. The princess is very beautiful. And I'll try again. So he went back into the room. And there he stood there, and he saw that Mr. Death waiting and waiting for her to breathe her last. He himself was dozing there by the head of the bed. He was dozing off. The boy watched very closely, and sure enough, Mr. Death dozed off to sleep. And as soon as he did that, the boy quietly went over. He turned the bed around. <laughs> 
and uh, Mr. Death is now at the foot of the bed. It's okay to give the beer. He gave the beer to the princess. She, she took it, she opened her eyes, and she revived. And she got up, he walked out. The king was so happy, everybody began to rejoice. But Mr. Death was very vexed, very annoyed, very angry with the boy. He said, you tricked me. And now you, yourself, will have to die in her place. And the boy said, uh, yes, well, okay. At least let me say the Lord's Prayer first. Okay, said Mr. Death, say it. That boy said, well, maybe I'll wait. And he said, wait, he waited. He waited and he waited. And of course, time passed. And uh, he thought that he'd tricked death. Well, one day, he, he fell asleep at night. He went to bed. He fell asleep at night. What could Mr. Death do? Well, the boy fell asleep at night. Mr. Death comes in late at night. He wrote something on a piece of paper and tacks it to the foot of the boy's bed. And he slept that whole night. In the morning, he woke up, and he was still half asleep and opened his eyes. He didn't know what it was going on. He looked down at the foot of his bed, and he saw there a paper. And I said, what does that say? He said, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, will be done. And, earth is in and then he realized uh, the, the power and the glory forever and ever. He realized, he stopped, oh, my God, I've just said the Lord's Prayer. And sure enough, he looks over, and there was Mr. Death, smiling by the side of the bed. So, the fear of death. Kubler-Ross tells us about the different stages that we go through naturally, psychologically, in the course of the dealing with the fear of death. Of course, the reason that we fear death psychologically is simply because we love life so much. And of course, we know, as students of yoga psychology, that it's not really about love of life, it's really about attachment. We're attached to our material things. We're attached to our family, friends, people, places, things. We're attached to our material flesh and blood body, to our persona. In short, we cling to life. And this is why in all religions they teach us that we have to begin to practice some detachment. Detachment is a virtue. I remember that there was a disciple of Swami Prabhavananda, who was the founder of this Vedanta Society. His name was Aldous Huxley, the famous writer. He used to live in the Hollywood Hills, and there was a brush fire. And the fire burned down his, his house on one occasion there. His whole house burned. They rebuild the house. That was replaceable. But what was not replaceable was within the house was his personal library of like 4,000 first edition volumes with dedications by the author, uh, hundreds of unpublished manuscripts 
uh, thousands of letters from famous authors and people around the world, and maybe most important of all, all the memorabilia of his family life, all consumed in flames. This all just happened overnight. It was interesting how Algis Huxley later, one letter there, he was wrote several lines. He, he seemed to have, well, very good. It was like, it reads like the, a good student of the Vedanta philosophy. Kind of seemed to take it all philosophically. That somehow all this had been taken from him and you can't take it with you. And that somehow he managed to deal with that. That was his experience of loss and detachment. Well, my subject this morning, let, let's, let's leave all this aside. We're going to leave all this talk of death and dying. Let's leave all that aside. Let's change our perspective. Because after all, this kind of talk of death and dying, it's all part of maya and illusion. The fundamental teaching of the Vedanta philosophy is that there's no such thing as death. What is the significance of death? There is no significance. There is no death. You are a divine immortal soul. And the soul is not ever born and it never dies. That's the fundamental teaching of the whole of the wisdom of the East. And if you read in the Bhagavad Gita, if you go to the second chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, you don't have to read the whole Gita if you don't want to. That's 18 chapters. You can just read the first part of the second chapter and you get the whole essence of the Vedanta philosophy. And in there, as you know, the allegory of the Bhagavad Gita takes place. There's a chariot on the battlefield, the, the Kauravas and the Pandavas, the great war, and the field of Kurukshetra. And Sri Krishna, that is the incarnation of God, is instructing Arjuna, his disciple. And Arjuna is in great consternation about all the, the war and all the death and the dying of his brothers and his, all of his cousins and his family. And Sri Krishna begins a discourse on the nature of the soul. We have beautiful verses there where he begins to discourse on the nature of the soul, that the soul is not born, is not die, having once been, it will never cease to be. Achaloyam Sanatana cannot be cut by they're talking about the soul. That is our self, the Atman within us, our true self. It can't be cut by a sword. It can't be dried by the wind. It can't be wet by rains. It can't be burned by the fire. The soul, the self of man, that is our self, who we really are, that we're unborn. We're undying. Having been, we can never cease to be. This is the doctrine here of the immortality of the soul, the fundamental teaching of the Vedanta philosophy, the divinity of man, the immortality of the soul. You remember how there's an incident that's recorded in history, discussed by Swami Vivekananda in one of his lectures, about an encounter between Alexander the Great the great Macedonian, well, he was the emperor of all of the known world at that time. 
He was the ruler of Persia. He was the pharaoh of Egypt. He conquered the whole of the known world. And now after years of marching, he had now come to the Indus River Valley. And he was looking across the, the rivers to his next field of conquest. That is the Indian continent. And there on that occasion, camping uh, on the eve of the invasion, in the forest, he met a, a sage, that is a, a, a sannyasi. He was a digumbara sannyasin. That means he didn't have any clothes. Maybe he just had a little loincloth sitting there on a flat rock meditating. And Alexander the Great, he was fascinated by this. He came over. He had uh, some translators with him who could speak in the dialect. This takes place in Taxila, in Takshila, which is in northwestern, today is in northwestern uh, Pakistan. And he uh, began to dialogue with this man. And the sannyasi, they began to discuss philosophy. And Alexander the Great, of course, he was a student in his earliest, earliest youth. He had been a student of Aristotle. And so he was very well versed in philosophy. And he was fascinated to hear the, uh, the teachings of the Indian sage. And uh, he says, sir, he says, revered sir, he said, please, you know, you're such fascinating. I'd love to have more dialogue with you. Please come with me, return with me to uh, Persia, to my palace. And the sannyasi smiled, smiled, you know, declining the, the invitation. Oh, no, you have, Alexander, he insisted. No, no, you have to come. Yes, you don't. I will give you gold. I'll give you precious jewels. I'll, you'll be, have many disciples there if you come, came with me. Sannyasi, no, that's okay. I, I don't, don't want to go. Then the Alexander the Great, standing on his great authority as the emperor of the known world, he said, what? He said, I invited you to come. Of course you will come. If you don't come, I'll have you executed. And then the sannyasin, so we're told in these old historical accounts, began to laugh. And he laughed and laughed. And then he began to recite those verses in the Bhagavad Gita in the second chapter. That I am a divine, how can you kill me? What, a, what an absurd idea that I was never born, that I can never die, swords cannot cut me, fire cannot burn me, that I am a divine, immortal soul. Well, as the story goes, Alexander was so impressed by that, the character of that sannyasin that he turned, that ended his quest for empire, and he returned to Persia. Well, just as a note to that, as a little addenda, you see, the story, as I tell it, was kind of maybe it was written maybe by devotees. Maybe there's another factor also. See, his armies had been traveling in campaign for over two years, and they were demoralized. They were tired of fighting. They wanted to return home. But they were ready to fight with Alexander. And in fact, they crossed through the Indus River Valley into India. And on the eve of the day of battle, they were prepared for a great battle. And on that morning, the, uh, the army did march with all of the soldiers in their armor, 
a formidable army that had conquered the world. And as the sun rose and they began their march, they felt the, the earth was beginning to tremble. I said, what is this? Tremble, tremble. Wait a minute. Half minute, minute. Feels like an earthquake. The earth is trembling more and more, begin to shake. They think it's a terrible earthquake. The whole army is beginning to... They look through the trees, the sentinels, they look from far off and through the trees, and they see the... This is the army of the Maharaja, where there were like thousands of war elephants coming towards the... That, that, was, that was the answer of the Indian Maharaja. He was just the first of the Maharajas... And he'd heard tell that they could marshal from three to 6,000 war elephants as they go through. So that was the turning point. <laughs> that was another turning point, the reason why he returned uh, to Persia. So, but let's come back to the story. Let's come back to the story of the sage. The sage says, he laughs. He said, no, no, I am a divine, immortal soul. I am not born. I do not die. And you may ask the question, why is it how can he make this assertion? What is the reason why? Why is it that the soul, the self, that is the Atman, our true self, our true being, why, why is it that, that we are unborn, that we can never die? Why is it that we are immortal? What are the reasons we can give to convince ourselves, and others maybe, that we are immortal? The answer to that is there are no reasons. There's no arguments for it. Why? Because if this is an axiom. This is a first principle of philosophy. This is the first principle of thought. And uh, there, are ax there are axioms, right? And they're like, like Euclid's geometry. You begin with the, with the axioms. The axioms are everything is proved by reference to the axiom, but the axiom itself is a, an indubitable proof. It's a self-evident truth. It is that principle from which everything else is derived. It itself is, is, uh, is uh, self-affirming. It, it's like you say, what is the shortest distance between two points, a straight line? Well, how can you prove that? Well, it's obvious. You don't need a proof for that. It's an indubitable proof. It's an axiom. Why can't you say these are like the laws of logic? There are certain laws of logic which we can't even question. We can't even think of questioning. You could say you can't have two people at the same place at the same time. How is that possible? No, it's, just, it's obvious. It's an indubitable truth. So Vedanta philosophy begins with this axiomatic truth that you are the Atman, you are the self, you are a conscious being. Everything in the universe you look and see, you've got to admit two things. You've got to admit consciousness, and you've got to admit being. And you can't have being without consciousness, and you can't have consciousness without being. They're two eternal principles. And you can't imagine being becoming non-being. I mean, that's illogical. 
You can't imagine something which is conscious becoming not conscious. That's just, that's just logic. In other words, if a thing really exists, if it really does exist, then it can never begin or never end. That is, it's a thing in itself. It's an internal thing. That's like Plato's form, the universal forms. They are eternal things. They can never begin. They can never end. Why? Because they're things in themselves. They are real. That's what it means to be real. And we ourselves, forget about philosophy, we look at our own mind and heart, we know that the first principle is that we have to admit the reality of our being. We have to admit the reality of our conscious being. I am that I am. I, I have to admit that I exist. That's the first principle of philosophy. I have to admit that I have being, that the being exists. I have to admit that I am real. Being and reality. You can't have something being there without... It's a subject and the object. And in Vedanta philosophy, the being and the consciousness are not two principles, they're really one. The being is consciousness. Consciousness is being. That's why when we say we have to admit that we are conscious, that's the Cartesian cogito, that I am conscious. But Vedanta goes further. If you are conscious, that you as a conscious being, it's not just that you are conscious, you are consciousness. The consciousness is the being. And that consciousness is the substance of your being. And that you, as a real being, you can never pass into non-being. Non-existence couldn't exist. How can you say that non-existence exists? It doesn't. If something exists, then it exists eternally. You can't even imagine that you would ever die that you would become non-existent. Let's say that you go through in the different religions of the world, they instruct us, that, well, it would be good for us to meditate on our death and dying experience. Well, just imagine that, okay, you died. Now you're being carried off to the cremation ground. You're sitting there thinking about this. Now you're, you're carried off to the cremation ground. Now you're being loaded up on the funeral pyre. Now they're chanting around your corpse, and now they're lighting the fire, and you're being consumed in flames. You're imagining and visualizing your own death. But wait a minute. Who is it that's visualizing all this? It's just you. You will always be there. You can never even conceive of yourself being dead or dying or non-existent or unconscious. This is why, at the time of death, the yogis withdraw their consciousness from the gross physical flesh and blood body. As you know, the teaching of the yoga psychology is we don't just have one body, we have three bodies. There's a gross body, the subtle body, and the causal body. At the time of death, the yogi will withdraw his consciousness from the flesh and blood, gross physical carbon-based life form here, and, and withdraw into the subtle body. 
And the Bhagavad Gita tells us there and the, where it says the Yadasam Harate Chayam Kumunganeva Sarvasha Indriani Indriartebya Tasya Pragya Pratishtita. The beautiful verses there where it gives the analogy of a tortoise. You tap on the shell of a tortoise and he feels very threatened. Oh, he's going to die. What does he do? He pulls in his little arms, pulls in his legs, pulls in his head. And he's completely withdrawn all of his limbs into the interior of his being. Similarly, it is the yogi at the time of death withdraws his consciousness. And I say the yogi, this is how all people die. So the yogi does it intentionally. He does it uh, just automatically, withdraws his consciousness into the subtle body and uh, withdraws from the gross body. Now, from the point of view of the observer, there has been a, a death and dying event here. A person has died, and the people are around, standing around the deathbed, mourning the loss. But that's from the third-person point of view. From the first-person subjective point of view of the person who is there, there's no death at all. He has withdrawn himself into his subtle, he still has a body, just as a subtle body. The subtle body is still animated with the same life force. There's no loss of life. There's still the mind. There's still the intelligence. And behind it all, there's still the self. So the, the being here is still largely intact. I mean, it's like you clip your nails or something. You know, I just, that's the gross exterior shell of your being. And the Gita there, of course, it compares it to like your flesh and blood body. It's like a suit of clothes. Just you take off the one clothes, put on other clothes that are new. So there's no death at all. The yogi is just transitioned, withdrawn into the center of his being and has moved into a different dimension. Well, the fact is, is that all of us maybe have had experiences where we have suffered the loss of a friend or of a loved one, and we felt grief, and we felt bereavement, and this is so natural. Even the saints and the sages, they feel when they lose someone that they love, they feel grief, and they feel bereavement. And if you read in the life of Holy Mother, you remember how in the death of Sri Ramakrishna, who was the kind of the founder of this lineage, when he finally entered into Mahasamadhi, that she was so devastated and she was so stricken with grief. And on the day of the cremation there, and the cremation was over and they found her there in her room. And she's uh, looking kind of a sad picture. She's looking through her clothes trying to find a sari, a widow's sari, that has only the, the black border. It's a custom. The widow has to wear a black-bordered sari, can't wear a red border. And so here she is stricken with grief, weeping, crying. Words to Sri Ramakrishna say, why have you left? Why have you left me alone? And she's looking through her clothes. And then she hears the 
disembodied voice of the master. That is, she had this kind of auditory vision. And in the voice, it said, Sri Ramakrishna is speaking to her. And he says, uh, what are you doing? He said, uh, you're not a widow. Why are you looking through these clothes? I'm not dead. I have just gone from one room to another. I've just passed from one room to another. And so like that, she heard those, those words. It gave her great peace and great comfort. And in fact, we're told in the biography, from then on we see that the Holy Mother did not show any outward signs of grief and mourning. She continued to dress as before with the assurance of the, that the Master was still alive and in existence. So this is the conclusion of the Vedanta philosophy, that uh, the fundamental teaching of the Vedanta philosophy about death, that uh, death is nothing but a threshold crossing. And that really speaking, there is no such thing as death. And that you are a divine immortal soul. And that you were never born and that you will never die. And that when you hear friends and loved ones who have passed away, it's helpful for us to think that they have just gone from one room to another. Om Dyo Hushantihi Antariksha Om Shantihi Pritivi Hishantihi Apa Shantihi O Shadaya Shantihi Vanaspataya Shantihi Vishwe Deva Shantihi Brahma Shantihi Saravam Shantihi Shantireva Shantihi Sashami Shantiredhi Om Shantihi 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 Om Peace is in heaven, peace is on the earth, peace is in the sky and in the waters. The herbs and plants and trees are full of peace. The gods are peaceful. May this eternal universal peace enter our souls and beings. Om, peace, peace, peace be unto us all. You've been listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Thanks for listening.